You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. We're beginning this evening a study in the letters of the Apostle John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we're beginning tonight in 1st John. John, who also wrote the Gospel of John and the Revelation, reading tonight from 1st John chapter 1, the first four verses as we begin our study. Listen to God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ." We write this to make our joy complete. This first letter of John is interesting in that it begins without any greeting or salutation of any kind that we're typically used to with epistles. There's no mention of who is writing. Apparently, the recipients would be able to know who the writer was simply by what he said and the way he said it or, of course, who delivered this letter to them. It's generally believed, of course, that the Apostle John wrote this letter very near the end of his long life, probably the last thing that he wrote. We don't usually think of it that way. As you read these, you probably think, well, he wrote 1 John first, and then 2 John and 3 John. Doesn't that make sense? Well, probably 1 John was the last of the letters or anything that the Apostle John wrote, and probably he was writing to a group of churches who were very dear to him, probably to a group of churches centering near Ephesus in Asia Minor, the same churches that the letter to Revelation, that the Apocalypse was given to as well. And here the aged apostle, very old now, apparently over years had acted as a pastor over this group of churches to some extent. And Probably it's after now even his exile that he experienced on the Isle of Patmos that, uh, from where he wrote the book of Revelation. And you can imagine him writing to this group of beloved church- churches. And travel, of course, wasn't easy in those days, especially for someone as old as John was at this point, probably in his 80s or 90s at this point. And so we can understand how letters such as these that we have in God's Word were a way by which John could exercise pastoral oversight even when he wasn't probably able to be always present with them. And we also have to try to reconstruct the situation that occasioned writing this letter of 1 John. There seems to have been a general disturbance of the churches that he was writing to due to a group of false teachers who had brought confusion and disruption to the church. John mentions them in chapter 2 at verse 8. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, verse 18, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So clearly, people teaching false doctrine had confused the church to some degree and then left. Apparently, from what John writes, we conclude that they were somehow denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Possibly they were separating in some way the historical Jesus of Nazareth from the divine Christ in some way and making a distinction between the two in some way, or asserting somehow that Jesus Christ was not necessary for salvation in order to be saved. And also we make other conclusions from what John writes that apparently they might have been making light of sin and denying somehow that sin interferes with our fellowship with God in any way. And they were acting uh, with a real lack of love for others in what they did. And uh, we saw that we understand that when they were unable to convert others to their view, they apparently left the churches or the church that John is referring to. And you can imagine that the church would be shaken to some degree from this kind of thing, probably raised questions and doubts in people's minds. Uh, Was there any truth to what these people taught, they might ask? Was Jesus Christ, did He really come in the flesh uh, as we've been taught? Were these people that left and taught these falsehoods, are, are they really saved or not? And for that matter, what about we who are left and are holding to the teachings of the apostles, such as the Apostle John. Are we really saved? Have we really believed the truth? And so, the whole matter of Christian assurance comes up, and later on at the end of the book in chapter 5, John says, I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. And so, the subject of assurance is part of the book. And as we study through this letter in the coming weeks, I hope that we will see what John says about the person and work of Christ and about the Christian's relationship to holiness of life and to sin and how that ties in and also the call to Christian love founded on God's love. Those are some of the themes that we see in 1 John. Some have called this book the tests of life. These are kind of tests of assurance, believing the right things about Christ and having holiness, increasing holiness in your life, and growing in love for those around you. But in light of all that, then we come to an examination of what we might call the prologue or preface to John's letter. He begins in this somewhat odd way by focusing in on the content of the Christian message, especially the person of Jesus Christ as we read about it here. And I would like us to consider this text under three headings. One is, Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of life. And then second, Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and Jesus Christ is the only means of true fellowship with the Father. So, let's consider the three of these. First, Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of life. In verse 1, John begins with an odd emphasis. He says, that which is from the beginning… And the way it's constructed in the Greek is that that phrase, that which is from the beginning, is actually the direct object of something he's going to say down in verse 3. We proclaim to you. 
that which was from the beginning. It's kind of a convoluted grammatical structure there. But John puts that phrase at the beginning for emphasis on who Jesus Christ is, the eternal word of life, that which is from the beginning. He's referring to Jesus Christ, obviously. Later on in verse 2, we see he says that life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you that eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he's speaking about the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And it's a very clear statement, isn't it, of the eternality of Jesus Christ. It's very similar. Doesn't it remind us of the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. One of the basic truths of Christianity, that in every generation is always under fire. There's always opposition and resistance to the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is the eternal God. And that's a truth that's often denied even by leaders in the visible church. Of course, we would say that churches that deny that have denied the gospel itself. They're not preaching the deity of Christ. That was true for John's day and is true for our day as well. Jesus Himself again and again claims to be eternal. He says He is the eternal I am in John chapter 8. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So, if you think somehow that the historical Jesus was simply a man, maybe a great man, then you're missing a very fundamental part of the picture that Scripture paints about Jesus, the eternal Word of life. He was more than a great teacher, although He was that. He was more than a great prophet, although He was that as well. He is the eternal God, and He has life in and of Himself. Think of what that means. When John speaks of Him as the eternal life, he's speaking about Jesus being self-existent. It's hard for us to grasp that, isn't it? Because we certainly aren't like that. Jesus was not created. He has life in Himself. He is, in fact, the giver of all life, both natural physical life and spiritual life. Very different from you and from me. We didn't have anything to do about whether we lived or not. We were born. We have life. It's precious to us, and we know that unless the Lord Lord returns, we will physically die. We're not self-existent by any means. Jesus was and is the eternal life, the pre-existing one, the eternal one, and He is the God-man. Again, we find this in the beginning of John's gospel when John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of man. Well, just stop and think of the implications of this. And we might think of the implications in terms of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Some might say, well, it means believing right things, being able to give assent to the Apostles' Creed or having doctrine right. And certainly that's part of it. Or some might say, well, it's right conduct. It's behaving in a certain way and keeping God's law, His moral law, 
And certainly that's part of it as well. Or somebody else might say, well, it means right feelings. It means having a heart that goes out in some kind of emotional response to God. And that's part of it as well. All those things are necessary in one sense, but they are the fruit. They are not the root of what being and becoming a Christian is all about. The root of being a Christian is to have life in the Son, to be united to Jesus Christ, who is life itself, joined with Christ, and be a recipient of the life, the spiritual and eternal life that He gives to those who trust in Him. That is the root of what Christianity is. And so, we need to ask ourselves, have I been made alive in Christ? That's what it's all about. And then, from that will flow right belief and right character and right conduct and right emotion. It's like Jesus says in John chapter 5 at verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Jesus speaking about the Son giving life. Well, do you see your great need if you have not come to know Jesus Christ? If you're sitting here tonight thinking about what Christianity is and thinking about the claims of Christ and what the Bible says about the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, the God-man, we need, you need more than just a new attempt to do better and to please God in some way by trying harder. No, you need life. And Jesus Christ offers eternal life to all who would come to Him. He is the eternal life. And I like the way Jesus says it at the end of the book of Revelation. He says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I've been reading a book about an account of some sailors shipwrecked off the coast of Africa, and they're enslaved there. And there are times that they are so thirsty it's just a terrible kind of existence, and they can't even talk. Their tongues are like wood, and they have no moisture left in them. Talk about thirst. They go literally for days, very close to, the, to, to death without water. You know, that is thirst. Jesus says, whoever is thirsty. I, reading their accounts, I don't think I've ever been thirsty like that. About the worst for me was probably in soccer practice on a summer day and feeling like, get me to the drinking fountain after this. Jesus says, whoever is thirsty for life, the eternal Son offers it to those who would trust in Him. Well, secondly, we, say, we see from our text that Jesus came in the flesh. We find this in verse 2 twice. The life appeared... There's that coming in the flesh. And we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Twice, the Apostle John says, he appeared. And then there's this emphasis throughout this preface on the apostles as eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. John just piles phrase upon phrase about the fact that as an apostolic witness, as someone who was with Jesus Christ, he saw him in the flesh. And these believers don't have to have any doubt that truly Jesus Christ became a man and lived on those dusty roads of Palestine. Notice how he talks about all the senses here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
hearing, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, feeling, sense in that sense. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then down in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. I was adding this up and I was thinking about when the Apostle John wrote and if Jesus, let's say Jesus died and rose about A.D. 30 and John was writing about A.D. 95 or 96 or something like that, right near the end of his life. So it it had been about 65 years. I was thinking, this is like a World War II veteran telling people nowadays about what World War II was like. And they were eyewitnesses of it, right? But it's been a while now. That's kind of like the time frame for the Apostle John. And we know that there are those in our day, people in Iran, people in the Middle East, and there's this bishop in the Roman Catholic Church, apparently, who is saying that the Holocaust is myth. And so how do you dispute that? Somebody who says, well, that didn't really occur. That's just made up by the Jews. Well, I was talking to a pastor, Bruce Mulwiney, the pastor of Wheatland this week, and his father fought through Europe in World War II and was part of the liberation of various concentration camps there, like Dachau, and w- describing the horror of it and the fact that, well, here's an eyewitness that's still alive and could say, I was there. This is true. It really happened. And of course, when those eyewitnesses are eventually all dead and gone, their testimony, whether it's written or oral in some form, lives on. So that's what the Apostle John is doing here. He's saying, if you have doubts because you've been confused by what these false teachers have been saying, it was 65 years ago, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I saw Jesus Christ. I touched Him. I lived with Him. I walked around with Him on this earth for those three years of ministry. We are eyewitnesses of those things. Well, the Bible is absolutely clear on this, on the incarnation of Christ. Again, looking back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation is true. There were eyewitnesses. And what an amazing truth this is. Doesn't it show God's great mercy and His compassion by sending Jesus Christ? And also, it tells us that our faith is grounded in history, in an historical person, historical events. It's not legend. It's not myth. It's not abstract philosophy that someone just dreamed up. No, it's historical And there's incontrovertible evidence. Jesus Christ lived and walked on this earth. He did claim to be who He said He was. He did die on the cross. He was buried. He truly rose again from the dead. And the Apostle John is declaring this to us. And we should take comfort in this grand truth of the incarnation. The God of the universe sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, to be human yet without sin, to die a substitutionary death for our sins. Our faith is grounded in history. Jesus Christ, the eternal Word,
became man. And that brings me to my third and last point, and that is Jesus is the only means of true fellowship with the Father. Because of what He did, because of who He is, because of His coming in the flesh, because of that, He's opened this new and living way that we might have fellowship with the true God. What an astounding truth this is. The content of this gospel proclamation that John is giving here, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of life, who came in the flesh, who appeared. And then in verse 3, in the middle of verse 3, He gives the purpose of this proclamation. Notice, let me begin at the beginning of verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that… Why? He's proclaiming it so that… Purpose. You also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He uses that very rich word, koinonia, shared life, participation in a common life. And he's saying, we proclaim this good news about Jesus Christ that you might share, you might have fellowship with us, and our, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. That's what Christians experience, a common life in Christ. It's a shared life because it begins with fellowship with God. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We are at peace with Him, and we are sharers of His life. And then this fellowship extends to all Christians. It's the basis of the fellowship that we share in the church, the life of Jesus Christ. It's telling us that the church is not a mere social organization of some kind or club. No, it's people, a group of individuals who participate in a common life. It's not based on culture or education or social level, but on Jesus Christ. As David was up here talking about Arab Muslims coming to Christ. And we might in many ways think how different we are from them and our different backgrounds and all that goes into that. But just think, we have more in common with an Arab Muslim who's come to faith in Jesus Christ than we do in someone of our own ethnic background who doesn't know Christ because of the shared life we have in Jesus Christ so different. The church is so different because of that from any other organization or group. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, then you have been brought into fellowship with the God of the universe and into fellowship with those who believe in Him. What a glorious privilege that is. Brought near, brought into fellowship with the true God through Jesus Christ. Well, let's just think of two words of application about this truth that we've seen. What are the implications of all of this? If we have come to Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with the true God. Well, the first application then is this. Cultivate that fellowship. Don't take for granted the fellowship that you have with the triune God. Commune with Him. Think about that even this week. You maybe have known Jesus Christ for years, and you've experienced communion with Him, corporate communion with Christ, and you've also experienced private communion. Seek the Lord in your life. Seek His face. Pray. Trust Him. Go to Him with the difficulties in your life this week. Go to Him with the joys in your life. 
God with us, Emmanuel. That's the nature of Christian life and experience. Give thanks, worship, praise, live in fellowship with the true God. This reality, just think how the reality of fellowship with God elevates all of life, how it elevates the mundane, that no matter what you're doing, no matter how mundane the task might be, no matter how ordinary your life might be this week, you have the privilege of living your life in fellowship with the true God. We were watching the other day this uh, PBS account of Queen Elizabeth's visit to the United States a couple years ago, and that was her first visit to the United States in 50 years. She hadn't been here for 50 years, so things had changed some. And they showed her trip to Williamsburg, and they showed her visiting the White House, and what a big deal this was, all the preparation. Probably some of you have seen this. I don't think this is the first time it's been on, but the thing that struck me is really the transformational kind of sense everybody had that the queen was going to be here. One journalist who had been around for many years said, yes, I've been a journalist all these years, and this is the first time that I brought my own camera with me because I wanted pictures of my own. I never do that. But he was there snapping them as much as he could. Just Queen Elizabeth didn't have to say really anything. Just her presence transformed everyone. They were just so thrilled to be in the presence of the queen. And really, when you think about it, it, sure, humanly speaking, it's a big deal, but it's just another person like you and like me, right? A sinner, uh, just somebody who's, you know, yes, royalty, but really no different from the rest of us. Well, just think of the transformational power of Jesus Christ coming into our lives, so much beyond and above the Queen of England. Does it have that impact on us the way we live every day? So cultivate that fellowship that we have with the Father, and with His Son. But secondly, cultivate fellowship with other Christians. And that emphasis is here, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. We write this to make our joy complete. Don't take for granted the fellowship of Christians. We share together in the life of God cultivate that fellowship. Rejoice in it. Notice how John, the Apostle John, takes great joy in building up others. Interesting the way he says that in verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. In other words, John puts it this way, John's joy in God is only complete when it overflows in love and service to other Christians. That's the completion of the joy. It's not something that is complete in isolation. True joy in God does not begin and end with me. It overflows by nature to others. And there's joy in giving to others and seeing them find joy in Christ. That's why self-centeredness is ultimately joyless. If you were a Steelers fan if you still are, I guess, you know, and last week you rejoiced in your team's victory, what would it have been like to have a ban on sharing that with any other Steelers fan? Can you imagine that? You're not allowed to watch it with anybody else, and all week you can't talk to anyone about it. That would have been joyless, wouldn't it? No, when you have that kind of joy in your team, you want to overflow with it. You want to talk to everybody at work and talk about the game and the team and everything like that. It's a joy that overflows to others. I remember 
that scene from Chariots of Fire years ago when Harold Abrams finally wins the 100-yard dash. He remembers trainer is in the little motel room. He, he didn't even want to go to the stadium to see it. And finally, when he sees the flag going up and he knows Harold Abrams won, he's just so happy. He takes his hat, his straw hat, and he punches it out, you know. And it's like, ugh, he's overflowing with joy. But he's not, there's no one else in the room with him. I'm sure we can imagine that he goes finally and sees Harold, Harold Abrams and fellowships and, joy, and has joy. But it would severely limit your joy if you couldn't share it with anyone else. The Christian experience is an experience that involves fellowship with the living God. What a blessing. Cultivate that fellowship and cultivate fellowship with others who know Christ and seek to let that joy overflow to still others who don't yet know Christ. But it's our privilege to bring the gospel to them that our joy might be complete in their coming to know Christ. We have been uh, been given a blessing much deeper and higher than any Olympic medal or any visit with the queen, we have been given life in Jesus Christ and fellowship with the triune God. Let us rejoice in that fellowship with our great God this week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the reality of Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Thank you for that grand truth and for the gospel account that we can rely on. Thank you that your word is true that these things are not myth or legend in any way, but that they are reality and they are our life. Help us to live that way this week. Give us your Spirit that we might grasp more firmly on to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray in His name. Amen.